the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Today we're chatting with Jack Lynch, MBE, former wing commander. Jack is a fighter pilot, helicopter gunship pilot and aviation services business owner. A life of aviation with many sometimes dangerous but always exciting challenges, but also with a lot of job satisfaction. In the RAAF, Jack operationally flew Iroquois helicopters, one year in Vietnam, mainly on gunships, uh, Sabre and Mirage jet fighters, RF-4C Phantom jets as exchange instructor with the United States Air Force and F-111C jets at RAAF base Ambly. In his business, he specialised in aerial photography, charter, commuter and aviation consulting. He now lives in Brisbane, pursuing a career as a writer aviation consultant and pilot mentor. He is now in the process of qualifying as a remote pilot for commercial drone operations. For contributions to aviation, Jack was awarded an MBE and a Master Air Pilot Certificate by the Honourable Company of Air Pilots, London. Jack, it's good to talk to you. How are you today? And good to talk to you too, Gareth, having Jack, uh, heard about you. Yeah, I, I, hope, I hope good things if you're relying on that information. Uh, certainly. I've got to say, fighter pilot, gunship pilot, a helicopter gunship pilot, aviation services business owner, you've, uh, you've got a full career, Jack. Well, I have, and I was very fortunate. I look upon it as uh, being able to do my hobbies for my working life. And uh, I achieved my boyhood dreams, and uh, you can't really do better than that in life. No, you certainly can't. I- I've got to ask gunships or helicopters to fighters. Fighters, if you had a preference, where would the preference lie? Well, I would say fighters because that was my dream was to to fly fighters when I was a kid, uh, and in fact. I didn't have a happy childhood and I'd already decided when I was early teens that I was going to depart the farm when I could and one day I was and I knew everything about uh, sabers because in the early 50s when I was sort of becoming alert to the world around me uh, sabers late 50s the saber was uh, our mainline fighter and uh, that's what I wanted to fly and, and yep. what cemented it was one day I was riding my horse Peggy, uh, moving a mob of 500 sheep, and two sabres flew over at low level in low what I now know is low level battle formation, and it just the sheep went everywhere. I didn't care. I was just riveted to these two beautiful jets. Watched them as far as they could to the, to the horizon, and actually said to my horse Peggy, I remember saying it out loud, Peggy. One day, that will be me. And that was a boyhood dream. And 13 years later, I was sitting in the cockpit of a Sabre to fly it. 
I just got to ask you, just out off as a side, what did Peggy do? Did did Peggy? Oh no, Peggy was she was well trained. She was a great horse, uh, and uh, she she just nodded when I when I told her that. She yeah, said right. she, she said I'll miss you, but. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, um, you told me uh, the background in, in terms of being obviously on the land yeah. uh, and sheep were involved there. Uh, what year did you actually join the RAAF? I joined in uh, 1966, uh, October 1966, having done what I had planned, was left home when I was 16, uh, went back to school. My old man wanted me to leave school. So he'd have a lackey on the farm, and I didn't really want that. I wanted education. So yeah. we went back to school, and then I went to South Australia from northeast Victoria, where we, where I grew up in the Kelly country, a little place called Winton, where yep. the motor racing circuit is. And I went to South Australia from 62 to 66 uh, on a cadetship, engineering cadetship, uh, which was a part-time study and part-time work on the job. Uh, on-the-job training, uh, but when I reached 23, 24 was the uh, age limit for Air Force pilot application, so I just had to go, and uh, I applied to the Air Force and uh, was fortunate enough to get in. Yeah. What was the transition then from the cadetship into actually flying, that first sitting in the in the Sabre, so you could say to Peggy, well, I got here. Oh. What was the transition? Well, it was just, just marvellous. You know, I was well prepared mentally uh, and had flown jets on training on the Vampire, trained on the Windshield Vampire. And then the choppers uh, did a jet refresher on Mackies at East Sail upon return from Vietnam. And then in the Sabre, we did about six simulator rides and then it was the real thing because there were no two-seat sabres. And I think I almost cried because I just it was just so hard to, to come to terms with for a few minutes anyway. Uh, when I was walking out uh, with squadron leader John Williams, who was my chase pilot and instructor for that first flight, uh, it was a very emotional thing for me. It, it wasn't mm. a job or anything. It was, it was This was my life my boyhood dream coming true. Yeah, that's 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 great, Jack. I, look, you joined in 1966, and so Vietnam has been underway now for four years. Yes. Starting in 62. Uh, what were the steps getting you to actually be based in Vietnam? Can you take us through that? Yeah, well, pilot's course went from October 66, beginning on the windshield at Point Cook, uh, about 112 hours and then to Rathbase Pierce in Western Australia, just north of Perth, on the Vampire, a uh, hundred odd hours on that. Graduated with wings, and because the Vietnam War was on, uh, there was a, a high demand for helicopter pilots. So out of the 21 of us that graduated, I think 14 of us went to helicopters. and. Uh, my instructor, I was older than the, than the average age, or older than many of the fellows on my course, and, yep. he, and my instructor was a Navy pilot, Fred Lane, a wonderful bloke. Uh, he said, look, as an older bloke, don't worry about going to choppers. He, he knew I wanted to go to fighters. You go to choppers, you do well. And uh, 
you 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 may well get back on to fighters. So that was my dream. I went to choppers, threw myself into it, loved every second of it. Mm. So there was about a year of training, doing the conversion course at Five Squadron in Canberra, at RAF Base Fairbairn, and then doing exercises with the Army in preparation for them to go to Vietnam and for us to go to Vietnam. And then in uh, March 69, I was posted to Nine Squadron Vietnam. And again, the right place at the right time, because as I arrived, uh, within a month, uh, they were aiming to have the gunships all built and the crews trained up and going into operations planned for the 20th of April 1969. So I started out as a co-pilot on, uh, on slicks, which are the, the normal Iroquois choppers. Uh, in the mm. early armour was a single uh, M60 machine gun on each side and seats inside for, for, the, for troop carrying or on the floor for carrying uh, cargo of various sorts, ammunition, food, whatever the army needed. Uh, and fortunate, uh, squadron leader Brian DeRue uh, grabbed me and another fellow by the name of Brian Brown, affectionately known as Bomber Brown, and we both ended up on gunships very early in our time in Vietnam which to me was just absolutely marvellous because I knew that there was a possibility that flying an armed helicopter uh, would actually have some value of later on going to fighters. And uh, so that's actually what happened. And interestingly, one of my heroes before I joined the Air Force was Bay Adams, a famous fighter pilot who flew tempests and typhoons in the Second World War. And he'd been mentioned uh, a number of times in book, post-war books by Pierre Klosterman, who wrote uh, Flames in the Sky and The Big Show. And he mentioned the tall Australian, Bay Adams, uh, who in the, in the early 50s was now a, a, a hero of mine. It just so happened Uh, towards the end of the term and I was now a gunship flight leader and a flight leader overall of gunships and uh, and slicks Bay Adams got myself and uh, pilot officer Brian Brown because he was on the base he was the group captain the air component commander and he asked us where do you blokes want to go when you leave uh, night squadron and in unison, uh, we both said, of course, fighters. Yes, yeah, fighters. <laughs> and, and Bay, uh, he actually said, well, uh, you realise the dickheads in Canberra, and that's the term he used, <laughs> the dickheads in Canberra think if you've flown choppers, you can't think fast enough to fly a fighter. Now, Bay used to come and fly as a co-pilot on gunships, and he knew what we did. And he said it reminded him of the rhubarbs that he used to go on uh, in Europe towards the end of the war on typhoons and temp- tempests. Yeah. And he said, I'll advise you to uh, write out a general application. Don't just leave it to the system to send you where they want. You write out a general application to go to fighters and I will fight the good fight for you. I will back your application. I know your CO will back it. 
and we'll see if we can get you to fight us. So Brian Brown, Bomber and I were the first two to successfully go to fighters. We did a, a refresher course on Mackey's at East Sale before we went to Williamtown and uh, then at Williamtown away we went on to the Sabre. Yeah, let's just go back to the gunship for a moment, Jack. Um, firstly, just a couple of questions. Uh, what was How many crew were on a gunship? Well, you had captain and co-pilot. You had what was then called a crewman, who later became called loadmasters, uh, and they supervised what went on in the back with troops or cargo or, yep. or whatever. And on the other side, we had airfield defence guards who flew with us as gunners, and they actually got their gunners winged uh, f- when they flew with nine squadron. And they each had twin M60s, and the the, the pilots had uh, rocket pods, a rocket pod each side that carried seven uh, 2.75-inch folding fin rockets with uh, seven or 14-pound high-explosive heads and twin fixed miniguns. A minigun is a a six-barrel like the old Gatling gun that could fire up to 6,000 rounds a minute, but ours were were, uh, geared to fire at about... 4,800 rounds a minute. Basically, that's about, when they fire out, so that's a bullet every six inches. It's quite an impressive machine. So the gunners, were they Air Force personnel or Army personnel? No, they were Air Force. The crewman was an integral part of, of, of the crew, and the gunners were uh, created out of people that were, were taken from the airfield defence guards. Okay, now the, the, the chopper itself, uh, what was it like uh, and in terms of a battle component? Well, the way it was, we built our own helicopter gunships that were slightly different from the American Army ones and the US Navy ones in that we had the twin M60s on each side, whereas in the American equivalent, they had a bungee cord with uh, an M16 as their weapon for the crewman and the gunner on the other side. With twin twin M6s, you had a great a greater firepower on each side. And the fixed miniguns meant that well, they were more reliable than the, the, the uh, articulated ones that would fire basically wherever the aiming point was set by one of the, the crew, uh, hydraulically operated. Uh, so, the, the design was quite brilliant by uh, my predecessors who designed it for twin miniguns, twin rocket pods, and the M60s on each side. And we flew basically as a pair, which was called a light fire team of two UH-1H gunships. Yep. And the idea of, of the, the actual design of weaponry was for the lead aircraft to fire from from quite a way out with rockets to help mark the target and also to have some heavy armour to keep the heads of the enemy down once uh, the relative positions of friendlies and enemy were were identified. Uh, and then you'd fire miniguns to, to get in closer into sometimes a couple of hundred metres or even closer and really heavy ones. And then the, the captain would or whoever was flying, would roll the aircraft into a turn towards the friendlies 
and start a climb. But by the time, basically, the minigun had stopped and the pilot had ceased firing the miniguns, the M60s, which were mounted on a swivel with a cam that prevented the gunner from shooting the tail or the rotor, which would be a very exciting yeah. occurrence if that were yeah. to happen, uh, they would actually begin firing. So there's basically no time that there wasn't ammunition falling on the, on the bad guys. And because it was on a swivel, as the aircraft turned around and started to climb back up, the second aircraft would be coming in on its firing pass. And basically, as soon as the M60s of the door gunners had finished firing, that second aircraft was ready with his rockets and then his miniguns. So we were able to put firepower on the ground almost continuously as long as we had a supply of ammunition and fuel. So therefore, as, as an effective fighting machine, the duality of two... It, it becomes a very effective piece of equipment. Absolutely. And I think it was the best combination of the of the UH-1 variants of gunships. Of course, later on came the, the AH-1 Huey Cobra, which was a different aeroplane altogether. But we also flew in heavy operations with three gunships, which was called a heavy fire team. And because the size of our province was small enough that if we got into a heavy contact we could get two gunships out there, the third one would be on standby and then when one of the gunships was ready to leave and go and refuel the third one would come in and then he would fill that slot and then we could rotate one aircraft to go and refuel and rearm but still have two on station and there were operations where we needed to have that because our troops on the ground got into very, very heavy firefights at time. And I know that uh, that we saved a lot of lives by having the foresight of those who designed our Australian gunships and the, the training of ex-fighter pilots uh, like uh, Brian DeRue, uh, who were our gunship flight commander. Yeah. Um- because it's a helicopter and not a jet fighter, because the Australians didn't have jet fighters in Vietnam, only right. the Americans did, but because it's a helicopter, therefore it's flying lower um, and surely susceptible to ground fire, even rifle fire, Did you did, had you that kind of experience in your time? Oh, certainly a lot of fire towards the aircraft, but again, in the gunship, that was part of the design, was to, to be able to keep firepower going onto the ground at all times. That's why we had twin everything, twin rocket pods, twin miniguns. You could actually select one at a time and the the crews in the back could select one weapon at a time and it would give you a long time on station. And, and if you're an enemy on the ground and there's rounds falling around you, uh, you don't really know if it's a twin machine gun or a single. Uh, all you know is it's rounds coming at you, so you're going to keep your head down. And while they've got their head down, they're not firing at our troops on the ground. Sure, sure. That experience in Vietnam in the gunships, what what are your most memorable memories from the from your your time there? 
Well, there's a couple of really good instances that let you know the sort of operation that it was. Uh, I think it was 31st of July in 1969. I was a co-pilot on a gunship and Charlie Company 5 Battalion got into a very heavy fight in a bunker complex of uh, North Vietnamese and Viet Cong out to the southwest of Nui Dat, which was the Army Task Force headquarters. They had uh, a number of troops that were wounded. They called us in because we sat on standby at Nui Dat, uh, the gunships and the slicks. If we weren't actually doing a job, we were on standby. We were called out. And this is where we started out with a light fire team. Uh, and we went out first of all to help break the contact. Uh, and then we swung into three aircraft, a heavy fire team operation with three aircraft. And it was significant because we then had to cover the troops on the ground, plus two of our, our uh, comrades from 9th Squadron in Slicks who came in uh, to rescue wounded troops that were still under under fire. Uh, Flight Lieutenant uh, John Hazelwood and Flight Lieutenant Lloyd Knight were the captains of the two dust-off. The rescue aircraft was called a dust-off, D-U-S-T-O-F-F. And the Americans said that it was an American term that uh, meant dedicated, untiring support to our fighting forces, which was a good American acronym. And, of course, everyone adopted. Uh, And when the troops got in contact and they needed someone pulled out, they'd call for dust off. So where there we were, uh, it went for some hours, four or five hours, this whole contact. The Army commander uh, was Lieutenant Colonel Colin Khan, affectionately known by his, troop as, by his troops as Genghis Khan, quite a, <laughs> quite a great leader. And he was actually airborne in an Army Bell 47, and they had the call sign uh, Possum. Uh, and um, he, his call sign was Sunray. So he's airborne. He wanted to know what was going on. The troops on the ground, the, the one we were calling was a call sign 3-1. Uh, I was co-pilot to Flight Lieutenant Ted Creelman, uh, a New Zealander, as Bushranger 7-1, I think Bomber Brown was co-pilot to Trevor Butler, another New Zealander, both really great men, great pilots and great leaders. And I forget who was in the third aircraft now. Uh, but uh, we liaised with the battalion commander. Uh, he helped organise getting the dust-off aircraft out there. Uh, and, of course, they're, they're also... Uh, organising artillery to come in and support them. We had to keep clear of the artillery. Uh, And then the dust-offs came in one at a time. So we were putting fire on the ground. When these fellows came in under fire, the fight is still going on. And I think John Hazelwood was first. They had to sit there in the hover, uh, 100-odd feet uh, above the treetops while they put down, while the crewmen put down a litter to pull out the wounded troops 
And, of course, that meant that he had to leave his gun, his, his weapons on his side, uh, and they were only defended or self-defended on one side by the uh, gunner on the opposite side uh, to the crewman on the left-hand side, uh, crewman on the right, gunner on the left, uh, while the crewman uh, put his trust in the gunships and the captain of his aircraft to look after him uh, while he did that very vulnerable job of pulling the troops up, yep. sitting there cool, calm and collected and bringing this wounded digger up. And I can tell you the relationship between Nine Squadron and the Army was like cement. It was solid. It was absolute solid. And uh, they were our brothers on the ground and the job had to be done. Yeah. Uh, so they both both uh, dust off did that and there is a tape I took a tape recorder the only flight I ever took a tape recorder and there is a tape recording of the whole operation recording all the, the, the gunfire on the ground the radio call signs on the ground our calls between each other in the air our calls between us and our home base and between us and the, the possum that had the battalion commander on board uh, and I'll send that to you sometime yeah, Jack, thank you. Uh, th these stories, it's so important that these stories are told and people like you telling them uh, gives a, that first-hand experience, which is just so important for someone listening to this right now uh, who's not in any of the defence groups or hasn't uh, been involved in any war situation, young, maybe Australians. It's such an important story. Uh, Vietnam especially has to be told and told and told again. How did you become an exchange instructor with USAF? Well, after going on to fighters from helicopters, I went on to Mirages after the Sabre. I then went up to Butterworth for two years, came back with 75 Squadron, and then came back to Williamtown on 77 Squadron. Now, uh, not many people know this because I didn't tell many people what my own plans were for my own career. But while I was in Butterworth, I knew that a course mate, a pilot's course mate of mine, Bruce Connell, was in America on exchange on the RF-4 Phantom, the reconnaissance version of the Phantom, and was absolutely loving it. And 77 Squadron, which I just happened to be posted back to, had a reconnaissance version of the uh, Mirage with a reconnaissance camera mounted up the front. And... I thought that would be a good thing for me if I went to America for, for a couple of years <laughs> to replace nice. my good mate Bruce Connell. So I also thought, now, there's a course down at Sale called the Officer's Photographic Course. I applied to do that before I left Butterworth, and I did that as soon as I got to Williamtown because I knew that having that course was a, a full officer's course, uh, three months of solid learning about photography. It was equivalent to the civilian uh, diploma of photography at TAFE. Uh, I knew if I had both that, and of course when I had that, when I went back to 77 Squadron, oh, you're photographic qualified, so we'll, we'll make you one of our reconnaissance pilots. And then sometime later on, when they were looking for someone to replace Bruce Connell, uh, they found it. Uh, yeah, I filled yeah. the slot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> funny about it. And my mates were saying, you bastard, Lynch, how did you get that job? <laughs> I wanted that. I remember 
uh, a dear departed mate, Jimmy Rothwell, and he he was really angry when he found it because he had jibbed at me and he said, why are you going to, earlier on, he said, why are you going to do a bloody photographic course with no flying? Oh, don't worry about it, Jim. And then it all dawned on him that that was all part of the plan. So let's just go back to while you are uh, an exchange instructor with Yousaf. Yes. Uh, how good was that? Well, it was marvellous because it was an instructional job. Uh, they have a different system over there. Uh, to be an instructor in the RWF, you have to go to instructor school, central flying school. But over there, they had instructors on each type of aircraft. So I did an instructional course on the Phantom. I did a conversion onto the Phantom uh, for about four months on a regular conversion course. And then I did a three-month instructor's course. Uh, and then I was placed in the 33rd Tactical uh, Reconnaissance Training Squadron as an instructor. And we were teaching uh, young guys who'd come from the Australia, uh, the uh, USAF uh, uh, Academy and young pilots who'd come off uh, the direct entry pilot training courses and people who'd flown KC-135s, B-52s and other sorts of aircraft who were transitioning onto the RF-4. And how receptive were the American students to an Australian instructor? Oh, extremely well. Uh, there'd been a quite a long line of instructors. Uh, I think the first one uh, that I can remember was uh, Lyle Claffer. He, as a, it was a he was a squadron leader and then uh, two more squadron leaders and then uh, flight lieutenant Bruce Connell off my pilot's course and then I was a flight lieutenant so uh, they knew Australians well uh, we knew their language very well because language could be a problem at times and having worked with Americans in Vietnam uh, and we all had very great mutual respect for each other uh, and it was also very helpful when they realised that I had also flown in Vietnam and worked with Americans. They, they loved that because they loved the fact that Australians have been beside the Americans in all, all wars since World War One. That's right. <clears throat> in fact, uh, it was uh, the only Australian, the only Australian to command a fully American a group was Monash. That's right, yes. The Battle of Hamel, yes. Yes, sir. yes. Well, people in the US Army still talk about uh, uh, General Monash. But I mentioned before about language. Uh, and, of course, students would come from all over America. And at that time, we also had students from Iran when the Shah was in charge. And we had German students as well. There was also a Canadian exchange officer on the base and a, a British exchange officer and a German exchange officer. We, we all became very good mates uh, and had a lot of fun, especially in the officers' mess on Friday nights. Um, oh, here we go. <laughs> but but uh, I had a, uh, a student from Alabama once, a, a really sharp young guy, uh, but I had to actually adopt an American accent and some Alabama lingo for, before he would really understand what I was trying to say about 
instructing him on the Phantom. And that was quite an experience. And I had to really fight not to develop uh, a really deep American accent. Uh, and the other thing, the, the other interesting thing was the Iranians were all quite sharp fellows and hand-picked. Uh, some of them had a very close relationship with, with the Shah himself. And one of these fellows uh, flew with an American fellow from Georgia who had that deep South accent. And this fellow from Georgia uh, came back one day and he said, oh, this is really sad. We're going to have to suspend this fellow off the course. He doesn't do what I tell him. And the Canadian and myself uh, knew what the problem was and we'd, we'd followed it through a little bit. And it was because the student could not understand the fellow from Georgia. So, so that was a very ticklish situation for us to break to the commanding officer. And the Canadian and I flew with this fellow uh, and did things like air-to-air refueling, night, night work, and he was, he'd flown F-14s, and he was a really, really sharp fellow. Yeah, uh, he knew what he was doing. And, and it was a language thing. But the, the commanding officer didn't say anything. He just made sure that the word was out that the students were not to fly with anybody from, from the southern states. <laughs> Isn't it great that we live in a country that all speaks Australian? <laughs> yes, right. Right yeah. across the whole continent. Yeah. I want to I focus for a moment, if you don't mind, on your MBE, because that's a rather prestigious award to have received. And it was, I believe, for work that you did uh, for project work and also being a test pilot on reconnaissance F-111s. Yeah. First of all, I, I hasten to add that I, I'm not a qualified test pilot uh, like the, the pilots from a, the RAF's Aeronautical Research and Development Unit. I was what was called a production test pilot after I left the Air Force. But for this particular job... Uh, it was a conversion of a prototype F1, one of our F-111s to a prototype reconnaissance F-111 and I was already flying F-111s and because I had the reconnaissance experience in America with all of the systems that went on board our version of the F-111, uh, again, I was very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time with current, relatively current experience on those systems to go and be the... Uh, uh, the, or the development pilot for that. The first flight was done by a fully qualified test pilot because you had to take it, the aircraft uh, through its full envelope and that was done by uh, Flight Lieutenant Terry Farquharson who was an Empire test pilot graduate. But I went over there as a squadron leader with a Flight Lieutenant navigator and a Flight Lieutenant backup pilot, uh, Martin Chalk the navigator and Frank Atkins my um, pilot uh, and we I shared the, the flying around uh, he was there f as a backup but we shared the flying around quite uh, quite well uh, so that everyone was able to develop knowledge that we could apply when we got back but there was a lot of work that I did that uh, uh, writing manuals and things like that reviewing the flight test program uh, unfortunately because I had uh, the experience that I did have, I was able to uh, rewrite the flight test program and save about two months off the uh, original planned flight test program 
and that saved uh, the RAF about $8 million. Uh, we had a, a hand-picked team of engineers, technical people for instruments, radio, radar, airframes, engines, and so on. The very best people in the world. Uh, and it wasn't me that uh, got myself the MBE. It was just a total uh, team effort. And it is a bit embarrassing uh, to be the only one to get an MBE. And uh, whilst I accept the honour and, you know, uh, and I'm and, and very pleased that I got it, uh, I do wear it and I don't mean this to be tried, but I do wear it for every single person that was on that team. They were so good to work with. Yeah. Jack, everyone who is given a special honour by the Australian government or the British government or whatever, yes... They get the honour, and yes, of course, it goes without saying that you are part of a team. Mm. Uh, there's no I when you spell the word team. Yeah. But someone someone is awarded it as a representative of all those other people that work with it. So wear it with pride. Yeah, Jack, and, and the pride. team we had, uh, I ran it a little different to what probably was the Air Force normal uh, when we would have uh, a, a meeting of the whole team together, uh, we'd drop ranks. It would be first-name basis. And the most junior man, who was an, a leading aircraft, uh, and he was an airframe fitter, and to be a leading aircraft craftsman, Dave Kedsley, and to be picked to go on a project like that is indicative of how professional he was in his work. And every one of those men... Uh, be LAC, corporal sergeants, flight sergeants, warrant officers, and of course the, the squadron leader and flight lieutenant engineers were, were the best in their field. And it was a real honour to work with them. Yeah. Jack, uh, the in 2015, the Master Air Pilot Certificate, how important is that for you? Well, uh, again, as a personal thing... I know, it's a team. <laughs> yeah, well, that that's a... Uh, recognition of contribution to aviation overall. Uh, it's awarded by what used to be called the Guild of Air Pilots and Air Navigators, now called the Honourable Company of, of Air Pilots. Uh, and it comes, it's, it's uh, uh, patron is, uh, was Prince Philip uh, and the Grand Master was Prince Andrew at the time when I got my award. And it is a very prestigious worldwide award for, and, I, and that particular certificate, uh, uh, Master Pilot's Certificate, uh, is awarded for your overall career and contributions. And I think having flown choppers, fighters, reconnaissance, strike, uh, and done those sorts of things, uh, and been flight commanders and executive officer in a couple of squadrons, uh, was and then had my own flying business as well after the Air Force uh, put me in in line for that, uh, and I, it was it was sort of quite a surprise. But a friend of mine had dobbed me in, uh, and he was part of the organisation in Hong Kong, Ian Fogarty, uh, and uh, I went to London in 2017. Uh, had some bang up nosh in the <laughs> in black tie. Uh, in the Guild Hall, which was absolutely magnificent, an 800-year-old hall uh, where uh, King Henry VIII uh, 
uh, had given the order to uh, have Anne Boleyn's head chopped off. So that's a part of history as well. I'm glad you came back with your head, uh, Jack. Yeah, yeah, me too, yes. Tell me about your involvement with the great Darling Downs Air Rally via the Darling Downs Aero Club. Yeah, when I set up my own aviation business in uh, Toowoomba after the Air Force and after working in Sydney for a few years, uh, I was a member of the Darling Downs Aero Club and I thought uh, that it would be good to teach uh, private pilots how Air Force pilots did low-level navigation and I came up with a, a low-level navigation uh, route what they had to do, they had to hack a clock at a, at a checkout point, fly low level, 500 to 1,000 feet uh, at whatever speed that they planned their aircraft at. But they had to, had to reach the turn points within plus or minus five seconds. Uh, and along the way, they had to also answer questions about how many uh, silos were at a particular farm at a, at a point along route, uh, what was the colour of a farmhouse, at such a, such a point, um, uh, and various questions like that uh, to gain points that were all scored, and uh, it went for about uh, an hour, 20 minutes, uh, which was quite a high workload. And I, I did some workshops and, and showed people how to draw the maps, how to how Air Force pilots uh, bred and low-level flying uh, and flying exactly on time was bread and butter for, for Air Force pilots, chopper pilots, fighter pilots and F-111 crews and, and any other um, Air Force uh, aircraft that needs to fly at low level and stick to a time. It was very successful. I ran it a couple of times and uh, uh, I left uh, most of the paperwork there with it, uh, but I'm not sure whether they've run it anymore. But when we did run it, it was very popular. Yeah. Of all the planes you've flown, including helicopters, what's your favourite and why? Well, uh, that's a no-brainer for me. That's the Sabre. That was my dream aircraft as a kid. Uh, I had all the magazines. I knew everything that was possibly known that was not classified about the Sabre. It was my uh, boyhood dream to fly the Sabre. Uh, And also, uh, it was a a single-seat aircraft uh, you were fully responsible, had the big bubble canopy where you could see around 360 degrees. Uh, and as a fighter pilot, that was bread and butter. That's what saved you from yeah. getting shot down. And uh, it was just a beautiful, beautiful aircraft. Uh, and there's only one flying in Australia at the moment. That's by ex-Air Force pilot Jeff Trappett, who has one down at, uh, in Victoria does uh, air shows around the place. The Air Force has one uh, that's flyable, but it it doesn't have the right ejection seat in it. And uh, it seems to me that there doesn't seem to have been the will on the part of the hierarchy to get this thing flying. Otherwise, we'd have this beautiful, uh, fully refurbished aircraft flying around air shows, which I think would be a great thing for Air Force publicity. Yeah, good answer. And I think Peggy, your horse, will be proud of the decision you made when those two sabres flew over you and scattered the sheep and Peggy nodded, that's okay, you go and fly them. Yes, she certainly would. And I will give Ringo a copy of the poem that I wrote about exactly that. Jack, 
absolutely honor to talk to you. Thank you very much. You've got a wonderful story, wonderful history, and you are part of a very wonderful history, 100 years of the Royal Australian Air Force. Thank you, sir. Thanks very much, Gareth. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.